Prince, just a fair warning that part of this conversation might be a little bit provocative. So if you have little children around and you don't want them to hear certain things, you might want to put on those earmuffs. All right. See you soon. I have a couple concepts in my head right now. The big one being pleasure activism. Yeah. And then that being a little, there's an aspect, I feel like, of pleasure activism and activist theology in, in, in terms of inventing new ways or, or, or imagining new ways to do activism. Mm -hmm. um, however, from your perspective and all of your work in, in being adjacent to queer culture, where does, is there any sort of polyamorous framework that fits into activist uh, theology? Th this is, we're, we're like going there. I love it. <laughs> um, so I will say that activist theology seeks to undermine heteropatriarchal monogamy, the kind of toxic monogamy that keeps us all from experiencing intimacy. Mm. Um, the kind of toxicity that keeps men from becoming friends with other men and women becoming friends with other women. So it does seek to undermine that. I, you know, I have not used polyamorous as a term for myself because it is a super white term, even though there are black polyamory people. I much prefer non-monogamy to refer to myself and to refer to my orientation to the world as a theologian and ethicist. And what I mean by that is I don't believe that one person can be my everything. They can be a lot, but they can't be everything to me. So how do we create conditions for a relationship to hold the nuances of other intimacies. And I feel like that is a big part of what I do in my current relationship mm -hmm. is we both have a non-monogamous orientation to the world, but are very much um, in deep commitment to one another for each other's flourishing. But we had to arrive at that. We didn't. We didn't just wake up and and say, "Let's have a non-monogamous orientation to the world." And I think that my work holds that type of non-monogamous orientation because I'm not tied to just one strand of thought. I don't think that one particular philosophy can be everything. And so, shall we say, I am, I flirt with the multiplicity of thinkers and being methodologically promiscuous allows me to have a non-monogamous orientation with the work of theology and ethics. Does that answer your question? Welcome to the Permission to Be podcast, everybody. <laughs> Hello.
Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined today by my good friend and co-host, Tommy Allgood. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. beautiful <laughs> so now that we've covered non-monogamy where shall we go next i'm gonna take a sip of bourbon <laughs> joining us today is dr robin henderson espinoza and we are so excited to have them with us dr robin is one of the founders of activist theology, a theologian, an ethicist, an author, a speaker, an educator. I would say also a healer mm. in the areas of theology. Amen. So, Dr. Robin, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and very happy to see where our conversation takes us. We've already started with a hot and juicy topic of polyamory and non-monogamy. Thank you, Tommy. <laughs> I mean, these are things I pontificate about often. Yeah. What can I say? Yeah. <laughs> um, Your answer was like poetry. Mm. Like, yeah. 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 Have well, we, can, ha- I, can have... I just add something to that? Of course. That that in our religious tradition of Christianity, there is a overwhelming oneness that permeates all of the discourse. In marriage, you become one with your spouse. In God, you become one with Christ. And so I want to trouble that because I think that that, that oneness and that history of oneness has not only silenced the tradition of women being in our religious history, but it's also silenced LGBTQ people. Mm. And this oneness has got us into a lot of trouble because it's also erected a kind of supremacy culture that says that theology equals whiteness. Mm. And so... I want to trouble those roots in such a way so that we overcome the logic of oneness Mm. so that we can hold multiplicity of identities like myself, right? I'm born of a Mexican immigrant and an Anglo Anglo man. I'm a mixed race Latinx. I move in the world as a white person unless I'm speaking Spanish. So Mm. either I'm a white Latinx or a mestizaje person or a white passing Latinx. Some people are not wanting me to call myself white passing because that does an injustice to anti-racism work. I'm still figuring that out for myself. Okay. There's a couple things that already in our conversation that yeah. I'm, I'm craving a little bit more explanation on. It, this is rich and we're not even three minutes, five minutes <laughs> in my gosh. Um, <laughs> Okay, you said a couple of things. So you said polyamory was associated, uh, you associated that with whiteness, and then you also said that alluding to yourself as white 
passing does injustice to anti-racism work. Can you mm-hmm. unpack that a little bit? Because I'm whoa. <laughs> well, in in the communities that I in the queer culture that I've been a part of, when I encounter polyamorous people, they're overwhelmingly white. And so I have rejected that term for myself and have instead used non-monogamous. One of the other reasons I use non-monogamy is to counter the singularity or the oneness or the logic of oneness in the tradition of Christianity. That if we can, you know, it's like the via negativa, you know, negative theology. If we can negate, then what can we say? This is apophatic mm-hmm. theology. And, and you know, I, I think that there are a lot of people who have had different experiences with the polyamory community. There are people of color who identify as polyamorous. I'm just one of those people who prefer non-monogamy because my work is trying to disrupt and dismantle heteropatriarchal bullshit Mm. that is bound up in toxic monogamy Mm. yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes so you so your other question was about white passing Mm -hmm. so i you know i've always referred to myself as someone with proximity to whiteness because of my skin color and i get read a certain way so i've always called myself a person who is white passing. I'm, I'm not brown like my mother. My mother cannot pass as white, but mm. I can pass as white. Culturally, you know, I am like an old gay man, like an old gay Latino man. That's culturally. But but when you when you see me in the world, you're, you, might, you might think, oh, that's a white person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm doing some work around, well, how do I talk about myself? If, mm-hmm. if I'm not white culturally or ethnically, how do I talk about myself? Because the way I'm seen, you know, until I come out as a Latinx, people are thinking that is another white person talking to us because mm-hmm. what we see creates reality for so many people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we don't have, I mean, we already don't know how to sit with black indigenous and people of color communities, much less mixed race people who have a multi-ethnic makeup. Mm. Mm. We don't know how to sit with the pieces of people. And so for me, Mm. you know, I'm trained as a Latin American liberation theologian in the United States and so I'm heavily informed by Latin America, Latin American thinking, heavily informed by the Chicano movement. And I, you know, grew up with a Mexican mom. So culturally, I, I am oriented in a certain way that is not white. And I think that when we when we talk about whiteness, we need, you know, we it deserves some nuance because to be a white person does not necessarily mean you're oriented in the same way as your ethnic heritage. Mm. And, and we're, we're, I mean, there's a lot of work 
that still needs to be done on that. Yeah. It, like I want to, I want to piggyback off of that and I have no idea even where to go because it, it gets so foggy and complicated and, and, um, and it's always tied back to identity mm-hmm. and, and dignity and existing in the world. And I, I find that I find it so interesting that you say that as I as I listen to you, as I know of you, as I've been adjacent and proximate to your work, to operate as a queer person would you do you accept that label as queer yeah identify okay. as trans and queer okay right okay. so in so, pro sorry we didn't go over pronouns either <laughs> yeah they them yeah so dr robbins pronouns are they them in all of that when we talk about the work of anti-racism uh and and though it, it has this this rootedness in race, how how has your queerness, your transness, impacted the work in anti-racism for you? Mm. Also, being a person on the margins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when I first entered the movement um, twenty years ago, I was living in Chicago, and. I was surrounded by a lot of white people who were fighting for LGBT rights, but really they were fighting for lesbian and gay rights. Mm. And, you know, I wondered to myself, where are the people who look like me, both in gender presentation and orientation and racially? I just didn't see um, a multi, multi-ethnic makeup in, in these organizing spaces. And so then, of course, marriage equality emerged during 2005, 6, 7, 8, and still overwhelmingly white. Mm-hmm. And I really felt that my job was to ask the questions, where are the people of color? Mm-hmm. As we know because the movement chose marriage equality as the thing to to go for, we know that there's lots of homophobia in communities of color. And so the people who came out for marriage equality were the dominant culture. Yeah, there were some people of color who came out in support of marriage equality, but overwhelmingly it was a white movement. Mm-hmm. And so I think right now living with the brutality, the police brutality and violence against trans women of color, which has always been the case. Yeah. I think we really have to reconcile our histories because on the one hand, our histories have served the dominant culture. They have not Mm -hmm. served the underside. And... You know, like Tony McDade, a trans man who was killed in Tallahassee, Florida by the police. Why isn't his name being lifted up? Why aren't we saying his name? Why is he being misgendered? 
and and I think it's because as a movement a couple things we don't know what to do with violence against trans people and that's the normative script so when you look at media representation the only kind of narrative media knows how to do or how to represent trans people is through violence why because that's the dominant representation in our culture or as sex workers mm-hmm. right so you know there's if if we're really talking about um becoming a movement to heal our culture to heal our world i think we have to deal with these narratives of marginalized people in a robust way i think if we don't we fall prey to capitulating to to the dominant narrative that silos these people these people silos marginalized people in in violent ways and so the movement has deeply impacted me i haven't always seen trans women in leadership i haven't always seen trans people being lifted up as people who are strategic hmm. i've seen cis white gay men and cis white lesbians being lifted up but i haven't seen those who might be on the underside of history mm-hmm. being lifted up mm-hmm. being a cis female i don't have a lot to say except that netflix came out with disclosure last week yes i co-signed that and uh in continuing education for myself uh, wow. Yeah. The movie does, or excuse me, the documentary, for those of us who have not studied and realized our history in regards to the trans community, it shows over and over and over again how our society and how our film industry specifically has um, portrayed trans individuals. We have become receivers of the movies and the personas on screen and we've accepted that and I believe that's how the dominant culture has responded to trans people mm-hmm. by laughing it's a joke it's funny just like you were saying when you there's no one in leadership that's a trans person well there is now yeah <laughs> um, one person and I think I think our movement has suffered because of that thank God that there are some trans people in the state houses Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. to help shift the narrative. But, you know, our movement, I think, needs to be led by those who are most impacted by oppression. And Mm. I think that's trans women of color, Mm. in particular, Mm. black trans women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, we... And even in thinking of the history of the Stonewall riots, trans women of color, black trans women of color held a major role in starting and fostering mm-hmm. that movement. And so it's it's always so interesting. I, I just I reflect back on on my experience 
coming out um, in reckoning with my internalized homophobia, like even even my internalized transphobia, right? Um, mm-hmm. be- because it was, I remember my parents saying things like, as long as, so that you're not a sissy or something, or they were right. so worried that somehow I was going to emasculate, be emasculated because of my sexual orientation. And I think what, in that effort to survive it, I'm not, there's no just, I'm not justifying it. It's really easy to other, our trans siblings mm-hmm. to say that, well, at least you know, to make ourselves feel better, at least then I'm not experiencing that. Or it's usually, at least I don't act like that. And that's not okay. That's not, Mm -hmm. that's not okay. And so even for me as a, a cisgendered queer person, I'm still having to root out my internalized homophobia Mm -hmm. and my transphobia and really elevate trans voices Mm -hmm. and queer voices of color as I continue on my journey of learning and acceptance and ensuring that I'm dignifying Mm -hmm. when I look at my friends group and I'm like, why, why, why don't I have more trans friends? Mm -hmm. Like that I know plenty of trans people. Why haven't I invited this person over to have dinner with Mm me? And so it reminds me and takes me back to the work of Brian Stevenson that says if, we are to correct these injustices, then we have to be proximate Mm -hmm. to each other. And I think that has been one of the biggest failures around cis gay men, cis lesbians, is that we've also participated in minimizing trans identity's dignity into entertainment. Right. No, you're right. And so many, I, I think about the trans youth who, who don't have supportive parents, who are being kicked out of their homes, and there's not enough shelter for trans youth. I worry about them. What are we doing for the babies who are on the streets, who are now learning how to hustle on the streets? because they don't have any they don't have anywhere else to go i mean i'm going to take this time if you're local here in charlotte and you're familiar with the organization timeout youth and what dr robin just said if that strikes an accord in your heart they have a program where you can sign up to sponsor uh queer LGBT youth who get kicked out of their homes and provide shelter for them. And so even if you're not in Charlotte, I would encourage you to look up your local LGBTQ Mm -hmm. organization. Uh, A lot of them are replicating these programs to Mm -hmm. provide access, especially for for trans youth who get kicked out of their home and need transitional housing. Um, So if if you have that capacity, there's always help needed uh, Mm -hmm. there to show love and to uh, invite these kids in to be like, hey, you matter and you have yeah. dignity too. So I just wanted to throw that in there as I thought about it. And here in Nashville, the organization that works for trans youth is Launchpad. Great organization, works to house young people. And 
you know, a lot of our cities and towns don't have adequate resources to house people indefinitely. And so it, as I mentioned when we first got on that, like I was coming to this conversation a bit with a heavy heart and, and talking about housing even and, and issues with housing. Just bringing in the the broader context of the day and time that we're living in, <laughs> we talked to Erin last week mm-hmm. about her work with Activist Theology Project and, mm-hmm. and somatics and embodiment uh, healing. Can you tell us from your perspective about Activist Theology Project, but also I want to broaden the conversation to include sort of a broader range in terms of, as we talk about, for background, what happened in Charlotte over the weekend is Juneteenth, and there was a party and there was a drive-by shooting mm-hmm. that happened in one of our historically Black neighborhoods. And immediately that was met with uh, calls to address Black-owned Black crime. and But really, think about these instances. That's just a dog whistle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It is to distract from actual issues taking place. And so then I think about trans women of color uh, often having this exposure to the criminal justice system at disproportionate rates and then linking that to housing, which is sort of how that connected in my brain. And so many people want to divorce anti- the work of anti-racism and say, well, this isn't the work of anti-racism. This is a Black-on-Black mm-hmm. sort of crime issue. Right. But when we start to talk about the effects of poverty, the effects of, of systemic racism creating oppression, mm. how does act- the activist theology work and project play into those dynamics? So... Let me go back a couple years. Um, I left my faculty post in Berkeley in 2016 and moved home to the South. I'm from Texas, didn't want to return to Texas, so came to Nashville and decided to launch my scholarship as a collaborative project. And so I founded the Activist Theology Project. And I knew that because I move in the world that looks like a white person and I'm educated. So I have these privileges that I needed to work with other white folks who were committed to dismantling the same kinds of systems that I was committed to dismantling. Now we call it composting to, to, to be, to be more in line with transformative justice. Okay. But, but I knew that I needed to work with other white folks who who I could invite to use systemic analysis and lived experience to do anti-racism at the intersection of a class analysis, analysis on ability, sociocultural analysis, etc. And so when I founded the Activist Theology Project, I didn't know what it would be. I just, I just knew that I knew that my scholarship needed to go somewhere. And so as things have gotten clearer, you know, what we're trying to do is culture shift. 
but we can't do culture shift without naming what's actually happening. And so we do a lot of truth telling, a lot of connecting the dots for people that racism is also tied to class. And if we're fighting racism, we also have to fight poverty, not the poor. So the Activist Theology Project as a collaborative project, as a movement, if you will, is designed to incubate and innovate these impressions, these imaginations in such a way that it could create some change. Mm -hmm. We think that that is best done through relationship. Yes. Because we can't change policy without relationships. But what I also know about white people is that they're deeply disconnected from their bodies, which is why I knew that I needed a somatic or embodiment perspective. And, you know, met Aaron a year and a half ago and, you know, quickly fell in love um, with them. But I knew that I knew that this work of systems changing couldn't be done outside of an embodiment perspective like that that social healing was part of somatics or part of embodiment. And so, you know, like Aaron and I have done a workshop on somatics and social healing uh, around what is the relationship of our body to the relationship of the work and, and which is a different take on how some folks are doing it. So that, for me, that was a little heady. So what does, can you explain what that looks like maybe in praxis? Yeah. So it looks like every Sunday we have embodiment practice at three o'clock and Aaron leads embodiment practice and we help folks get into their bodies. It means that we've held online gatherings for churches And we do it through an embodiment lens. So where are you feeling the anxiety in your body? How can we release that anxiety? Okay, I hear that you're feeling fragile and you want to go through a shame spiral. So how can we stop that shame spiral and allow you to be present to this conversation? So there's all these these ways of thinking about this work. Um, But I think that if we first don't know how to address it, the ways in which our bodies have internalized supremacy. Mm-hmm. We, we will only come away with talking points. Mm-hmm. I was just saying, uh, yes, go. Yes. Um, yes. Aaron, what her Sunday classes is a couple Sundays ago. I got to go to, and she did, um, we did this rocking movement um, in association with trauma and mm. being a mother and, um, knowing there's part of we were doing padding of our skin and knowing when you hold a baby, you're padding them and your your body, it's a it's a release of that tension of that trauma. And after doing several movements after an hour with Aaron guiding us, it was it was just phenomenal. And like I can't the images and the way my body felt like it just has stayed with me. And I just am so grateful. Like, it, mm-hmm. oh, I just keep learning about the somatics and how our bodies um, flow with our trauma. And it's, uh, it's mind blowing. Yeah. 
Mm, so highly recommend that work. Um, we talked about when we talked with Aaron, talked about that exercise that we did at the With Collective and just mm -hmm. all of uh, the amazing things that, that arose and came out of that. And so to know and to hear that you are integrating it um, in this way for justice one, I, I'm still mind blown and I'm still, you know, and I'm still learning about it. And so it's like, I don't, I haven't, I don't even know what questions to ask because. Yeah. <laughs> well, let, let, let me say it this way. My, my new book is on embodiment and our bodies and democracy. I'm, I'm making the case that embodiment is the missing link to, mm. to a healthy and whole democracy that, if we can change the relationship to ourself and we can change the relationship with one another, that those changes can so deeply impact our culture in a way that we can, we can heal our wounds, mm. but we first have to start with ourselves. Mm. Yeah. And that's any therapist that you go to will tell you that. <laughs> You know, any, any, you know, people see me at the hospital and I'm like, you have to take ownership of mm -hmm. your health. You have to, you can't be fixing everybody when right. it's your body that is the one that is requesting the attention at this moment. Um, and I think that there's this misguided notion in justice and in, in justice work that we have to burn ourselves out. We have to go, 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 and, and do, do, do for everyone else at the expense of our bodies. Mm. Well, that is the grind culture, right? Mm hmm Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 100%. And, that's, and that's motivated by capitalism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. We just mm. need to do away with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I find myself really struggling to even as I'm trying to step into this anti-racism work and, and trying to do anti-racism work and all, all these other endeavors still within the capitalist construct. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it, it is even in doing that work, it's like, because it's like, well, I need to eat. I need to, I need to do all these things, but I find myself like, Oh, I didn't respond to that email and, mm -hmm. and or, or I didn't, you know? And, and so there's trying to find that balance of of I, I, we have been putting it lately is this contemplation and action contemplation mm -hmm. and action this this divine sort of dance um because mm -hmm. if we're not well if we're not in tune with our bodies then we're just going to continue to perpetuate the hurt that mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. done to us yes that's right so i'm trying to figure out how to ask this question because what keeps going through my head okay is the misnomers that a white culture hears when we hear take care of our bodies and we intermix that with individualism mm -hmm. and we in turn center ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's this, I feel like there's a, there, had, there needs to be a lot of breakdown of what individualism is and what self-care is because our capitalistic society, our white society turns that focus and it, it becomes 
And I'm so sorry. Here are all my tears for all the bad things I did. I'm healing. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the whole like American yoga phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is appropriating a spiritual culture, a spiritual practice from the subcontinent Mm -hmm. of India. Yes. Right. So this is a good question because how do we, how do we teach white folks to center the felt sense of their body as part of their analysis Mm -hmm. around supremacy culture? What's also teaching white folks how to be in community with other white folks, Mm. which, you know, I feel like white folks disconnect from their heritage you know they just don't have a historical memory and so they they just check out they just get disconnect yeah oh completely so it's first teaching how to be in community and then while teaching that teaching how to center the felt sense of the body and then combining that with systemic analysis right um, mm-hmm. our, our lived experience, if we are not, you know, I was listening to one of the things that Aaron, Aaron watches these webinars all the time and she did the somatic webinar and, you know, the soma is the living body. And if we are not tending to the living body, then we are not tending to ourselves. So learning self-care is also tending to the soma, the living body. And that that's the work that we are trying to do. How, in your view, does tending to the living body connect us to spirit or divinity? Well, uh, my colleague says, even when religion isn't the answer, spirit is. And I think probably, as I think everything is theological, everything is connected to spirit. And if, if, we, if we want to talk about the theology of God being in all things, that's called panentheism. And I, I would lean in that direction heavily, that, that God is in all things mm-hmm. and and God is in the work of helping people get into their bodies and whether we call that spirit or divinity or God it's there mm. that is so that I, I guess that make that, that takes me back and makes me want to reconnect that and and get a little more clear so if God is in all things. From our earlier conversation about oneness mm-hmm. and sort of this, I didn't hear you say distancing yourself from oneness, but like how does this theology of oneness and, and panentheism or God in all things then play out in all this? Or are those two unrelated concepts? Well, I mean, I think that people who are panentheist would advocate for a oneness I want to advocate for multiplicity Mm -hmm. and for divine multiplicities Um, and I want to work for a world where we can each have 
a, a spiritual encounter that doesn't need to be categorized or explained that it can just be and that's when we get back to our ancestral roots and to our indigenous roots because western religious traditions have created categories that require evidence for religious experiences but when we when we reach back into our ancestor world we might be able to learn some stories that transcend the rules of Western enlightenment. Hmm. Wow. Wow. <sighs> and so it is, it truly, you are interrogating and dis, it sounds like dismantling the entire system that we function under. Yes. That would be a yes. <laughs> Correct. That is what I'm doing. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. Like, the, <laughs> all right, this is permission to be, so I got to ask, like, oh what God. fears come alongside that? <laughs> what fears come alongside that? Yeah. Like, in a very, just like in a very tangible way, like, oh, <laughs> who well, you are how you walk like what like i would be terrified probably to well, even <laughs> i'm trying to stay i'm trying to stay off the radar of the police <laughs> not trying to get on their radar <laughs> sure um, right right well you know i mean these narratives these religious narratives cultural narratives are very thick and run very deep and so you know, I may be able to move the meter a little bit, but dismantling the system is going to take a community effort, mm -hmm. which is why we are doing the best we can to educate folks and connect the dots for folks. I mean, you know, I'm going to die trying mm -hmm. and, and hopefully somebody will, pick up this work when I'm gone and say it was worth something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a, what I see in your work is a very holistic work. It's tackling so many different aspects of our culture and how we live and inviting us into imagining a new way of being. And mm -hmm. that is, it's it's fantastic. It is 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 liberating, and it's, like, it's yeah. all the things that you went to school for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the it's the work of radical imagination. Mm. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. Well, I feel like if we can imagine the world we want, we can make it so. Mm. And it's going to take all of us to imagine the world. Mm -hmm. Capitalism has kept our minds so busy yes. that we imagine so little. Yes, yes. And and to that point, the dominant culture just doesn't have an imagination. Mm -hmm. Black folks have an imagination. Latinx folk have an imagination, right? I mean, so, so much of the community that I grew around, grew up around, 
you know, their imagination, you know, they were working land, working somebody's land and, you know, they had imagination to make enough money to go back home and be able to survive, you know, or bring their family here. Mm. But mm. the, but the dominant culture doesn't have the imagination. And I was reading this interesting thing that talked about like children, when they have a plethora of toys to play with, those children end up being less equipped to use their imagination than those who have mm. a few or the same toys to play with or repeatedly. Mm. And I guess that sort of leaves me at, I mean, I won't even say a place of conflict just because it's not something that I've been able to think through in any meaningful way. But I'm, I'm just curious as to the, the psychology of oppression versus the psychology of, of those in positions of oppressor mm -hmm. um, and how that relates to this ability to imagine different things i imagine like the oppressor is imagining like ways to continue to hold on to power right. <laughs> well you know i think about that as a mixed race person who has oppressor and oppressed it running in my blood that to be a mestizaje person is to have both sides of the coin in you with some indigenous blood in you and it's dynamic, it's fluid, and we should always work to decolonize the oppressor in us and decolonize what is oppressed in us. Mm. And that's also dynamic work. Yes, yes. So tangibly, you alluded to avoiding <laughs> police. Right. And I know you've been having lots of conversations in this day and age on what imagining defunding the police could look like. Yeah. How is that playing into activist theology right now? Well, we, we did a, we did an episode on our podcast where we talked about defunding, disbanding and abolishing. And, you know, my co-host is on one who is a cis white straight woman. She's on one side of the, of the argument Defunding, yes, but can we reimagine the police? And I'm on the side of defunding and abolishing because I I think that our modern day militarized police is had its roots in the slave patrol. Yeah, yeah, yes. Maintaining white order, and so I don't I don't see any reason why we should have that in operation right now. So, but I'm an abolitionist. I think that we should abolish prisons and cages mm -hmm. and ice and yep. So, amen. Yeah, <laughs> you you won't get no arguments from me on that. <laughs> or me, like, we <laughs> get rid of it all. A moment of vulnerability. I have found in George Floyd happened, and then sort of watching the events unfold, and people started to pour out into the streets and probably was the first time in my life that I considered I was like I could really get arrested mm. <laughs> yeah and, and 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 there was some you know I laugh when I say it and, and I know that for me sometimes laughing is like a comfort mechanism but it really I did really bump up against that realization as as I'm 
marching with my people, mm-hmm. marching with 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 my tribe to to say that this has to stop this is enough yeah mm-hmm. and i've never had to reckon with that and that was a different fear mm. than i've ever had to experience in my life because all of a sudden i'm thinking about all right do i have a plan if i do get arrested who am i going to call <laughs> I don't really know any numbers by heart anymore because I'm right. a millennial. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, it's, or, and then, oh my gosh, well, there's actually people getting arrested. Do they have the support that they need? And then that got me in contact with some local community activists. And, and all. It, it's amazing to see the work that's already been done, that, that has been being mm-hmm. done over the years. Um, and it feels like in this moment, we're being called to sort of give all of ourselves mm. in, in, in some way, in, yeah. in healthy ways, of course. But I resonate when you say trying to stay off the police radar because it's like, of course, I'm I'm an I 100% advocate for nonviolence and yep. how I understand the language of a riot, though I understand the language of violence. It's not something that I ever want to employ for myself. Mm-hmm. But it's this psychology that I can understand and say this is from deep wounding that has not been addressed. And I found myself asking white people who would come in contact with me this question of what are you willing to lose? And when I think about my ancestors and what they were willing to lose... At some point for me, that requires me to ask the question, am I willing to put my body on the line? Right. Mm-hmm. How does activist theology wrestle with that thought or wrestle with that concept? Well, I think that activist theology is designed to address violence and overwhelming violence in this world and to advocate for nonviolence. But it also advocates to get your hands dirty. And sometimes that's not going to look like what we think it should look like. Mm. But at the end of the day, activist theology is about restoring yourself. And finding the ways where story can heal the wounds that society has caused. And hopefully by restoring yourself... There is movement to get in the streets, and there's movement to get your hands dirty. Mm-hmm. Back to that rest and contemplation mm-hmm. and rest in action. Mm-hmm. Mm. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, Dr. Robin. We had the honor of having you on as one of the very first oh, guests yeah. of the Permission to Be podcast. Yeah. And that's been over a year ago. Yeah. How was the journey? I mean, at that time, uh, your book was just about to come out, mm-hmm. um, which is a phenomenal book, y'all. Uh especially the audible version because Dr. Robin's reading it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but what has changed since then for you? Mm. Well, I think that 
the work has intensified and learning how to organize and teach in any capacity online and to to mm-hmm. innovate online has been a huge learning curve but with with quarantine life and covid-19 we've seen how disproportionately black and brown folks are impacted and so mm. how do we communicate these disparities while while also helping people to not be so fucking racist <laughs> mhm you know mm-hmm. so uh, uh. amen the the work the work is just a lot right now and I mean, the things that have changed are I'm not on a plane all the time. Hmm. Um, I am on calls and Zoom and podcasts. And hmm. and hopefully, hopefully it will do some good in the world. So understandably, there is a sentiment that says this is just yet again another time where the white community is jumping on the bandwagon of what is currently on the media. Right. With protests. And and it does feel like people are truly listening, but you never know. Mm-hmm. What is your feeling about this time? If it's really, I mean, I know like you can't label it, but like, I'm curious what your gut is saying. Well, you know, I had a call with uh, my Enneagram teacher today, and my concern is that protesting and marching is being normalized because white people now care about it, and white people are now out mm-hmm. in the streets. And so I feel mm-hmm. concerned that we're going to normalize protest and marching without getting material change. Mm. And so... Yeah. I'm paying close attention to what's happening Mm. to see when does policy change happen? When, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. I feel like in this work, we have to be hyper aware of patterns Mm -hmm. and what you just referenced is, is the pattern, right? It is the pattern that also provides the the breeding ground for the language of riots, for Mm -hmm. the language of violence, because it's inaction. Mm -hmm. And so for white folks listening, I hope you don't tire out because this is a marathon. And I say that with exhaustion in my voice (laughs) because I am tired. But I recognize that that exhaustion is calling me to rest and recharge to fight for another day. Mm -hmm. Because this is the work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is the work. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Robin, what... I don't don't know if we... This tells you how bad we are sometimes. Sometimes I forget to go back to listen to some podcasts, some of our episodes. I don't (laughs) know if we asked them on the first podcast or not. Honestly... We've asked this question in a couple different variations, and however it comes to you, that answer is welcome and okay. Okay. (laughs) 
What is salvation meaning to you today? And that can be salvation, liberation, deliverance, protest. What is all of, what is this act of transitioning into something new, something more free Hmm. meaning for you today? Yeah, I mean, I think it is the eclipse of liberation or freedom. I would be comfortable using those terms. Mm. Mm-hmm. And we we see but a glimmer of hope in, in what's happening, but hopefully mm-hmm. it will grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very hopeful. And I, Austin Channing Brown words in her, the, the words of her last, one of the last chapters of her book about hope dying resonates with me. And I've become more comfortable with aspects of hope dying because it always seems to give birth to new hope, mm. Um, mm-hmm. to new energy, to new ways of thinking, creating, being, using our, the imagination. Mm-hmm. I think for me, hope had died that white people would get the would understand why people were kneeling but it gave birth to a new hope when i saw white people on the streets mm-hmm. <laughs> in mass <laughs> yeah yeah mm-hmm. and as the protests go on there's a bit of hope dying in terms of the change that we will see as the economy reopens up there's hope dying for me but it's sort of this continued process of death and rebirth mm-hmm. that yeah. i'm experiencing in in some way somehow that feels liberatory or liberatory to me yeah yeah i mm-hmm. think hope is defiant mm. mm-hmm. yes <laughs> well well <laughs> i cannot wait to continue to co-conspire with you yes and to be on the front lines with you yes excited whatever that looks like whatever that means yeah also you mentioned that you were working on a new book yeah yeah talk a little bit about that for a minute as far as like where are you at in the process is it something that's coming sooner than later well the manuscript is due january 1st okay so it is 2021 we're in 2020 still right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is time? <laughs> so the manuscript is due next January. It'll probably be out the following spring. Nice. Yeah. That is exciting. Yeah. So Dr. Robin, we've done this before with you, but where can people find you? So I'm on all the all the socials, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and I'm maxed out on my friends on Facebook, so if you can follow, I don't know why they cap it. You know, like that's so stupid. But you can't be that popular, (laughs) right? But if you can follow my professional page, which is Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa, and then on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at i Robin, and that's the letter I R O B Y N. Well, thank you, thank you, thanks for hanging out. Yeah, thanks for having. Yeah, thank you for an expansive conversation. Yeah, we went yeah. a lot of places. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we did. But it was amazing. Like, oh, such good conversation. Till next time. Till next time. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host Tommy Allgood. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. If you would leave us a rating and or review, we are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guest in the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com.